All right, let me start with Matthew 28, 18 to 20. And this is often called the Great Commission. You're going to know this passage. This is the last thing Jesus says to his disciples in Matthew. He says another few words in Acts, but they're very similar. So just before he leaves to ascend to heaven, Jesus gives us this instruction called the Great Commission. Let's read it together. Look at this. And then Jesus came to him and he said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Before we jump in here, let me, let me tell just a picture of my own story. And I have told, um, there's four parts in this picture I've spoken about each of the parts a little bit before, and there's more to share. For the sake of time, I want to condense it to kind of help you to see something. But I was blessed with the most faithful parents you could imagine. My parents were in ministry, and they were the real deal, not only at church, but at home. And they framed everything in our lives about what Jesus would want for us. I remember coming home from a baseball game and having a you know, an altercation on the baseball field as a young kid mad. And my dad looking at me and being like, what do you think Jesus would say about that? Well, I don't want to think about that. Yeah. <laughs> I remember them framing everything through the lens of Jesus. I'm so thankful for them. Act two. In high school, I went through a bit of a faith crisis. I was reading things about science. Didn't have the depth of faith to understand those things well. And it created a real spiritual crisis for me. And my dad was really wise because he realized I had reached the point in my life where I needed somebody else to speak into my life besides my dad. Now, my kids are never going to get to that point, but it's happened with other kids. I'm sure <laughs> it happened with me. And unknowingly to me, my dad, there was an intern who worked at the church. His name was John Dollar. He was training to be a minister. And my dad told John Dollar to reach out to me. And in that like weird time, and I didn't know that my dad had asked him to do that, John Dollar, who's this older guy that I looked up to him, he's in his young 20s, so I thought he was super cool. And he and I started studying the Bible together every week. And I really credit what John Dollar helped me to understand through the Spirit of God with saving my faith at that time. When I went to college, I, because my parents were in ministry, I wanted to do anything in the world besides ministry. This is Act 3. And uh, but this guy, some of you will know his name. His name's Randy Harris. He was a professor at Abilene Christian he invited me into this small group of young men. He would study the Word of God with us each week and encourage us. That was Act 3. And I really credit my decision to change my major and go into ministry to what the Lord was doing through Randy Harris. I'll tell a longer version of that story sometime. And then Act 4 is the act that I'm currently in. And in Act 4, I have several people, some of them elders of this church, who I would consider mentors in the faith, who regularly get together to check on me, to pray with me, to think with me about God's Word. There are several that I go to often when I'm preparing a sermon to ask them what they think about this. And so those are the four acts in my own spiritual journey. And the reason I tell you all those four acts in that condensed version is I want you to see something, okay? That my faith is not the result of me by myself in my office with my Bible. 
okay? There are, I know there are people here, because they've said this to me, who think that all I do is sit around all day and read my Bible. And they said things like, man, that'd be great if I could just sit around all day and read my Bible. Okay, one, that's not all that I do. Um, but two, here's what I want you to see. My faith is not the result of me by myself in my office with my Bible. My faith is the result of critical people in my life at critical moments that I believe were sent by the Holy Spirit to help me understand, appreciate, and grow in God's Word. Do you see that? Okay, each of the important acts in my own life, God used special people. What were they doing? They were discipling me. That's what they were doing. So that's what this morning is about, is the language we get from Matthew 28 to go and make disciples. How do you do that, and what does that look like? For the sake of definition this morning, let's throw these two definitions up on the screen. The first is what I think is a really good definition of what a disciple is. This comes from an organization I like a lot called the Renew Network. I've talked about them before. But this is their definition based on the Word of God of what a disciple is. A disciple of Jesus is someone who is following Jesus, being changed by Jesus, and is committed to the mission of Jesus. You like that? I like that too. Is that you? Is that you? I bet it is. Okay. If that is true about what a disciple is, then what does it mean to make disciples? Let's go to the next one. Disciple making then is entering into relationships to intentionally help people follow Jesus, be changed by Jesus, and join the mission of Jesus. Now, pause here for a second. I told you about the critical people in my life who've helped me to do that. Who are the critical people in your life? Think about it for a second. Who were those people? The people who helped you to do that. My guess is you have some of those people. I was on my way to a, a preacher retreat the other day, riding with another preacher, and I told him that story about Randy Harris. And I've told that story dozens of times. He's been real important in my life. And he said, have you ever told Randy that story? And I was like, no, I haven't told Randy that story. <laughs> He said, you should call him. And I called him a few weeks ago. I said, Randy, I just want you to know I'm in ministry because of you. And he was so blessed by that. What, as you think about those critical people, if they're still with us, they haven't passed on to glory. What if you called him this week and you said, thank you? What if you did that? Okay. But as you think about those people, here's my guess. You hold those people on a pretty high pedestal, don't you? To you, they seem so holy they seem like saints to you. They knew so much scripture. They were so prayerful. They were such good husbands or wives, better than you, right? And so for you, they are way up there and you are way down here. And so your tendency, like mine, when it comes to making disciples, is we think about who made us a disciple. And to us, they seem like, like the spiritual special forces. You know, they're like the spiritual Navy SEALs. Okay, so making disciples is something for the most elite of Christians, but I'm never going to be good enough for that. Anybody feel that way? I'm too sinful. I'm too busy. I'm not a good enough dad. Like, I could never make a disciple of somebody else. Trust me, I get the feeling. Okay, I get it. So let me just pause here and say this morning, this, let this, this conversation about making disciples let it be an invitation to you, okay? not a guilt trip. Let it be an invitation 
What might happen if I were to try, by God's grace, to disciple somebody? That's the question this morning. What might happen? Just let it be an invitation. Again, not a guilt trip. What might happen? To answer that question, what you need to think through first is what does discipleship look like? So let's go back to what Jesus says here in Matthew 28, and let me show you this. He says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. One of the things that's not totally clear about this, but it's so important, one of the things that's not clear about this instruction in the English language would have been very clear in the Greek, but that's nerdy, and I'm not going to explain that. You're just going to have to take my word for it, okay? This is what it looks like. In that passage, there's only one instruction. The instruction is make disciples, okay? So the what in the passage is one thing. It's not four things. It's one thing. The what is make disciples. That's the instruction that Jesus gives to us. And then there is a how. And the how looks like more instructions, So you're supposed to go do four things, but really you're supposed to do one thing, and there's three important pieces to doing that one thing. Are you with me? The three important pieces are three things to go, baptize, and teach. So these three things are the essence of how we make disciples. So let's talk about each of the three for a second. How do I make disciples? The first thing is I go. You know, isn't it striking that Jesus doesn't say, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, now wait. Right? What does he say? Go. What that word implies is initiative. That you should go, whether that's to the other side of the world or to the cubicle next to you. Okay, maybe it's just you pick up your phone and you send a text message, but that you take some initiative to connecting with somebody who's not connected with Jesus. You don't wait on it to happen. What do you do? You go. We got a young man here. He's in law enforcement, and he's one of our best evangelists. He's been bringing new people every single week. I I had lunch with him this week to find out what's happening. He says, Eric, it's the weirdest thing. It just seems to kind of come up naturally. You know, I'll be talking about something going on in my life where I'll say I can't come to this because I'm going to be at church, and they'll say, where do you go to church? And I'll tell them, and they'll say, can I come? And I'm like, yeah, you can come. He says, it's that easy. Okay, what's he doing? He's taking initiative. He's talking about his faith with other people. He goes. All right, step number two, baptize. Let me just pause here. We live in a world where it's really ugly to ever tell somebody they need something they don't have, that there's something lacking in them. But Jesus makes it really clear, before you are going to be able to obey and understand all that he instructs us, we need him. Okay, We need his help through the Holy Spirit. I'll circle back to that in a second. But for those who haven't taken on the Lord Jesus in baptism, the first step after you go, the first step for them is actually baptism. So starting on March 17th, not next Sunday, two Sundays from now, I'm going to spend three straight Sundays talking about baptism. Okay, that's going to end on Easter. We're going to talk about baptism on Easter. Turns out the death and resurrection of Jesus is connected to your baptism, okay? So if you want to help somebody understand baptism, invite them those three weeks, starting on March 17th. So I'm not going to spend a lot of time on baptism today. 
But lastly, teach. And so let's look at the actual instruction here. Jesus says this, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. Now, this is key. Once you go and the person you have gone to has been baptized into Christ Jesus, the next ongoing dimension of baptism, the one that lasts a lifetime, is teaching what? Obedience to the Word of God. Obedience to the Word of God. Now, this is really key here because this is what separates discipleship from mentorship. In mentorship, you rely on your wisdom and experience to help somebody else make good decisions. In discipleship, you rely on the Word of God to help Jesus change someone's life. Do you see the difference? So discipleship is not about what you know. It's about pointing somebody to what? The Word of God. Because what would be best for them is obedience to God's Word. Jesus tells a parable. And this parable is about two guys who build houses. The first guy he calls the foolish man who builds his house on sand. His whole life is built on something that's not stable. And the rains came down and the floods came out, came up and his, his uh, house fell with a great crash, right? You remember that? Jesus doesn't call him a bad man. What does he call him? Foolish. He's built his house on something that isn't sturdy. And then Jesus says this, this is Matthew 7, look at this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice, the word of God and obedience to it, is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. When the rains came down, the floods came up, it stood, right? because it's sturdy on a foundation. This is so important to see. I mean, you cannot understand discipleship unless you understand that discipleship is an effort to help someone build their whole life on a firm foundation. And the firm foundation is the Word of God. Okay, so why do I need to be baptized first before this will play out in my life? Well, look, look at this in John 14. Look what Jesus says. The advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, who you receive when you're baptized, we'll talk about that in a few weeks, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. So the function of the Holy Spirit is what? To help you understand the word of God that you're building your life on. That's it. Okay, so this is why Jesus' order makes sense. Go, baptize, teach, because without that crucial step, the teaching falls on deaf ears. Are you with me? You understand that? Okay. So how do we grow? Let me show you this. This is how I think that we grow based on the Word of God. I think the people of God grow through the Word of God and the people of God around them and the Spirit of God. Specifically, the people of God empowered by the Spirit of God pointing one another to the Word of God. That's, that's actually how we grow. Okay. So you're thinking to yourself, oh man, Eric, I like the sound of that. The only problem is I don't know the Word of God. I don't know the Word of God well enough to point somebody else to it. And let me just say, yeah, it would help if you knew the Word of God. Right? This is the moment you're supposed to be like, Eric, it doesn't matter, I'm all good. No, no, it would actually help a lot if you would read your Bible. That, that would help a whole lot. Okay, um, It's, it's kind of like baseball season has started up again. 
and um, got a shout out over here. And uh, one of the things that strikes me is the difference between um, the dad or mom who's coaching the team and all the other dads and moms, okay? And they're all good people, okay? They're all amazing people, okay? But I have to like get on YouTube for hours on end and look up drills for t-ball players, okay? Like I have to learn it, why? So that I can teach it. And I think a big reason that many of us don't know the word of God is because we don't think we're ever gonna be in a situation where somebody is reliant on us to teach it to them. We have kind of excused making disciples again for the spiritual special forces. And what that actually does is it turns around and it makes us spiritually anemic because there's a power in learning something so that you're prepared to teach it. Do you understand that? You see that with me? Okay. All right. So you're like, okay, whoo, man, I'm going to learn the word of God. And then when I learn the word of God, I'm going to be a disciple maker. Well, hold on, hold on there. Maybe you don't have to wait that long. Jim Putman, he's a, a guru in discipleship, and he talks about the five stages of spiritual growth. Let's throw these up on the screen. Five stages of spiritual growth. He takes these from the New Testament, and there are so many people over the course of history who have tried to think about what it looks like for us to actually grow, but he, he, he defines these five stages, and I like them. They're good. He says, you start out spiritually dead. You know, Paul says you're dead in your transgressions and sins. Okay, you discover Jesus, you accept Jesus in baptism, and you become an infant. And the thing about an infant is they can't do anything for themselves. They're just being fed. So that's how you are at the beginning of your life. You're just soaking everything in, okay? And then you become a child. And the thing about a child is that they know more, a child in the faith, this isn't a slam on any kids here, they know more, but they're still self-centered, Okay, right, and that doesn't apply to any of our children here, so you, so you can understand how that's a bad, okay, all right. What happens as you grow is you move from not only knowing more, but to being less, less self-centered. So this is the young adult, the spiritual young adult. So this could be an 80-year-old person who's at this stage, who begins to serve others, is trying to discover their purpose. They still have a little of self-interest. But what separates the young adult from the spiritual parent is the spiritual parent is somebody who sees their life as others-focused and Jesus-dependent. Okay, it's all about passing on the faith at that stage. That's how you'll know you've reached that stage. And so who do I need to be to be able to disciple? Here's what I think you need to be. Let's throw this up on the screen. I need to be further, not finished further not finished. As you think about those stages, you know, a spiritual child has a lot to offer a spiritual infant. A spiritual young adult has a lot to offer a spiritual child. It's not that you need to be finished. You're not going to be finished this side of glory. It's that you need to be further along and look for somebody who's behind you in their growth. Does that make sense? For the record, I, I looked it up on Google. I really don't know if it should be, should be further or farther. So... That may be just a big typo up there. I think it's spiritually true, but English, the English may be bad. All right. So um, who should I disciple? Let me show you this. Jesus had layers of his relationships. He had the inner three, Peter, James, and John. He had the 12. He had the other disciples who followed along with Jesus. That's clear from the New Testament. And then he had the crowds. And at some level, Jesus was discipling all of these people 
But his, the nature of his relationship with the 12 and the inner three was very different from his, the nature of his relationship with the crowds. And the truth is, the proof is kind of in the pudding in that those 12 go on to do radical, sacrificial things for the kingdom of God that not all of the crowds do. He's making a bigger difference in the life of the 12, okay, and then especially in the life of the three. So let me show you this. This is something that our leaders have thought through. This is called the Bill Ivey shepherding model. He didn't name it after himself. I named it that. This is something Bill presented to our leaders a while ago, and I like it. Bill says that when it comes to shepherding, he thinks about those he needs to connect with weekly, those who are going through something acute, those who are dealing with a sin, who need to be challenged and encouraged by the Word of God weekly. And then he thinks about those who maybe what they're dealing with isn't as acute or his relationship isn't as close to them, and they just need to be checked in on monthly. He's going to scatter seeds into their life and water it every once in a while. His, his, his obligations to them aren't as intense or demanding. And then he thinks about the rest, who as God presents them to him, he's going to receive them and bring them into his inner circle if needed. So if you were going to think about it, and you're trying to decide who you might disciple, think about it this way. Who are the one to three people who weekly you could point to the Word of God? Who are the one to three? Parents, that may be your three kids. Okay? And then on April 14th, I'm going to talk about that. That's your most important job as a disciple maker. I'll talk about that. But for the rest of you, who are your one to three that you could encourage weekly? All right. Let's go, let's go to the square. Can we jump to the square, Russ? Can we do that? Let's end with this. We've just finished this series on building blocks. What do we do to become disciples of Jesus? And you're probably thinking to yourself, man, I want to do all those things. What if I knew the Bible better? What if I prayed more deeply? What if I gave more generously? And so a desire is planted in your heart. And I think those desires come from the Lord. But often what follows those des desires are despair or is despair. And you think, man, that sounds good, but I know me, and that is never going to happen for me. And you give up at that point. You're tempted to pull the eject lever, okay? And you cycle back to the beginning. You just wait on the Lord to give you new desires, and you never actually grow in any of this. Well, what we know about growth is that growth happens when you push through despair with discipline. You take some small step in one of these things that we have been talking about, and you make that a regular rhythm of your life. And as you pass through discipline, what the Lord gives in response, you know what he gives? Delight. He gives delight. I didn't come up with this. I stole this from Smith Hopkins, our preacher at Oikos. You know what? He stole it from somebody else. So if a preacher can't remember who stole it first, it becomes his. So I want you all to see this thing I came up with about growth. All right, I need to end here. But let me just challenge you. What's one small thing you could press through on? One small discipline you could take up that the Lord would grant you delight out of?